Welcome to the James Connolly Festival. This is the first of a uh, week of events, um, some absolutely brilliant topics. Uh, this event is uh, members own clubs, can they prosper? And I hope you enjoy it. Yes, yeah, so we're here to talk about uh, football, like can, a member, can members own clubs prosper? Basically, it's probably a really good time to talk about it given uh, the European Super League and lots of discussions around um, you know, fans being ignored by club owners and feeling uh, totally separate from clubs that they attach themselves to. So uh, what I might do is just ask uh, each person to introduce themselves and give a bit of a little bit of background if you're linked to a club, obviously uh, two definitely are, I'm not sure about, about Gavin. Yeah, um, I'm Johnny Ward, I've, um, I've actually known Neve since we were in college together and we probably bonded through the League of Ireland um, back then. So I'd gotten into the League of Ireland when I was um, 16 or 17 in Galway and I've been more or less going to games every year since. I think one, one year when I was a kid I went to every game home and away and now um, I edit the match programme and um, I'm a member of the co-op and I am the media officer at Galway United. Right. Yeah, so I'm Neva Amani. I know Johnny far too long. Um, I am a member of Forest, and I think my connection to League of Ireland football originally is dad from Derrynan Road, so we had to hope, really. Yeah. <laughs> we got uh, dragged down when we were small, and once you're there, and once you hear that first goal, which took five games, uh, to go in, like you, you'll never go back. Um, so I moved to Dublin, actually, to college, and that's when it really started for me. We considered ourselves exiles in Dublin. Uh, started, got, got involved in the co-op when I moved back to Cork, spent several years on the board. Um, and through that, we had the opportunity to have a governance project with European funding. And it was through that, I suppose, I got involved with SD Europe and Supporters Direct in the UK. And then for a two-year period, I was actually interim CEO and communications manager of ST Europe. So I had two years of supporting and talking to clubs and fan-owned clubs around Europe, which was brilliant. And now I'm secretary of the Irish Supporters Network and I also represent League of Ireland supporters and FAI Assembly. So I'm a lot less interesting. Uh, Gavin Cooney is my name. I write about Irish football with the 42. I'm originally from Longford, but mostly from a GAA family, if I can, uh, if I can admit that. Uh, so I wouldn't have gone to too many Longford Town games growing up. I would have gone to the cup finals, like uh, all the glory countries. Uh, in my family, and uh, but I've started covering the League of Ireland uh, through work for the last few years and loving it. Brilliant. So we, we talk about like, like when we talk about like kind of members own club prosper, I suppose the most important thing to probably ask at the outset, it's something that never really asked is like wh why a football club exists. And I might like put, put that question out like, because very often what it seems to happen is, is that we might get onto this is that global capitalism seems to be in, being mir mirrored in, in football in, in, to a huge extent where you see clubs that ultimately had local fan bases and then they became more international and now you've got people involved in those clubs who mirror global business and try and extract maximum profit from as many places as, uh, as possible and ultimately maybe be, begin to care less and less about the immediate area because it can't reap the rewards that they get. So like when you look at a football club and like everyone's obviously fans of football, like what, what do you think like is, is success Trophies, maybe start with you, Gavin. Like, is, is success as a fan, do you think, is it measured in trophies or is it measured in something else? I think that's a big, almost kind of existential debate that's been kicked off from the Super League. If you're looking at it in terms of trophies, then I would say it's quite, like, I mean, we see across Europe that very few models are fan-owned when you look at the biggest clubs in Europe. I think of the, you know, the Deloitte Money League of the top 20 in, the, in Europe, I think only four are, are member-owned, Barcelona, Madrid, and then Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich. So if you look at success has generally been measured in trophies, I think for certainly the biggest clubs in Europe, and obviously trophies means the revenue, it's, it's this kind of bizarre contradiction where football should be a social enterprise and built around the community, but it's in a hyper-capitalist industry, so it has to stray from those roots. And there's something, you touched on it there, Dan, like it's almost analogous with 
what we've seen in the wider economy where 70s from maybe the 1970s early 1980s with kind of that Thatcherite Reagan deregulation of, of financial markets etc it happened as well in football um, I looked at this from an English point of view and traditionally English football clubs were meant to be social enterprises and were effectively regulated as such there were rules around like a director couldn't take more than I think it's seven and a half percent from from the club's profits for their own pocket there were rules around the zoning of the ground that couldn't be sold off to property developers and the way it changed was in 1981 I think it was with Tottenham like I mean we're, there was a lot of sniggering about Tottenham being in the Super League but it was kind of symbolic in a way that they were in it because they were the English team to kick this off the uh, Irving Scholar was the uh, was the owner of Tottenham at the at the time and he decided to do something that no one else, else had done and float a sports team on the stock market and how do you do that he, he found a loophole around the rules and the loophole he had was to create a private li a limited company which uh, which he set the company up and then the company runs the football club um, and that was a loophole he wrote to the FA of England to uh, to warn them that he was doing this almost to kind of get the permission and they didn't respond to the letter. Like, I mean, that goes to show how, to the point of like hands off deregulation was going on. So that's where, that's where it's begun. And, you know, and then it becomes a kind of rat race where everyone has to try and keep up with each other. And then that's just becomes a kind of a financial arms race that I think hit a tipping point with the Super League. You could see even Barcelona and Madrid are, you know, they're the two biggest, arguably probably the two biggest football clubs in the world. They're both member owned, but that they're joining the Super League was almost an admission that this doesn't work. You know, we have Paris Saint-Germain owned by the Qatari state and uh, Manchester City owned by the Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi royal family. And the Super League was a way of their, of kind of reining in the op their spending because they wanted a salary cap and so on. So that was them admitting that uh, we are, like, we, they are enormous football clubs and enormous pillars of those societies and communities, but even they can't keep up in, in the current climate. So. Up to now, uh, just a very circuitous way back to your original question, I think success has been measured in trophies, but I think there are massive limitations to that, and I think people have to uh, have to start recalibrating what they consider success. Yeah, no, and, and we use like Tottenham as an example, maybe starting out from an owner, like Neve, we bring it to you, do, do you think, do fans, is that a two-way push? Like, it's easy to see why, why captains of industry or like, global capitalists would like to own a football club because they can profit from it, um, because people have this emotional connection and, and they can really drive profit there. But do you think that fans ultimately push as well? That, that fans, and we've seen lots of cases in England where you have clubs who become member-owned, like we mentioned Wrexham before we start filming, and there's lots of others, where fans gain control and very quickly give it away again. And is that, why do you think that happens? And maybe, like, could you tell us a bit about what's happened at Cork recently? So I think there's a, there's a, there's a really interesting use of language between, say, even if you take the UK and, and Germany and some of the other countries, we talk about ownership, whereas in, in Germany they talk about being members of their club and being entitled to be members of their club and what do you mean we don't have a right to say in our club. So they have a very, very different mentality. And you'd see the same in Sweden, for instance. They have 50 plus one, Austria 50 plus one as well. In terms of here in Ireland, it's a really interesting concept because people would often say to me, half of our, half of our clubs in, in the top tier are fan-owned or cooperatives or member-run clubs. And people would ask, why is that? Like, why does it work in Ireland? And I think we have a concept of sport in Ireland that is based on volunteerism and it's built from a grassroots, um, it's built from grassroots up. When we wrote the governance book for the for the for a European project, we had a Waterford United fan who's a mad League of Ireland historian, David Thomas, and he did this profile of where 
football clubs in Ireland came from. And it was workers, it was unions, it was community groups. And we've kind of moved away from that entity because we sit next to the Premier League and we look at what they have and they've loads of money and they've big crowds. Where for me, I, I tend to always look at the positives. And if I look at the League of Ireland in the last 10 years, I see more clubs now than I saw 20 years ago. And by clubs, I mean men's senior team, women's senior team, underage, disability, community, volunteerism, bring all that in. That's what a football club is. And I think if you put that forward and say that's what you want to be, it's almost a negative sometimes because you want to win stuff as well. The funny thing about football is only one team can win the league and maybe you have a cup and maybe you get into Europe. But if you don't have that sustainable foundation underneath it, it's all going to pile in on a top of cards and that's what we've seen several times I would say. In terms of what's happened at Cork City I suppose what I would say is we're probably the most ambitious football club I've ever come across and that's because we're from Cork and we are the biggest football club in this country and we have the most potential in this country and we are limitless in terms of ambition so sometimes we're our own worst enemy. I would say personally I didn't uh, agree with the decision to, to agree to a sale option but it was a decision that was made democratically, it was a decision that was made by the membership. Um, it's not a done deal, far from it, so we'll have to see, but I think we had a real sense of who we were for a while and our potential, and I think somewhere along the track we probably weren't so sure. Like You do need that collective, we're working together, and probably the time that Forrest was most potent and at its strongest ability, it was when it was working together to achieve something which was to, to make that fan ownership model a, a success. And we did, we, we won the double, we won lots of different things. But, um, you know, there's a, <clears throat> an economist that works in the UK called John Beach. He works out of Coventry University, I think. And I remember hearing him say that you can do everything possible to have a sustainable football club. You can do everything right, do all, all that you need. But then you have to look at the league environment it's working in. And is that league environment sustainable? And I don't think there's any of us up here that would say the League of Ireland could definitely be more sustainable. And then you fit that league into the game, the, the greater game, and ask, is that sustainable? And when you look at the Super League and what's happened in this past two weeks, the competitive balance of football, you'd also have to say, generally speaking, football is not sustainable. So you're trying to counter all of these wider environmental factors, and it's just incredibly difficult. And on the Cork scene, just a short question that answer that. Like one thing we've been told at Bohemians is we speak to people in the UK who are familiar with members' own clubs. And there's a guy, Ryan McLean, who I think you've met as a consultant in this area. And uh, he kind of said, what's most dangerous as a members' own club is when you begin to get an element of success, whether that's bigger crowds or qualifying for Europe, or, because that drives demand. And it's far easier to be in a, a less successful uh, members' own club because people don't expect much. Yeah. And once the expectation grows, then there's this shift where that leads to people who want to win things and that tips the kind of balance and you get fans like basically directors of these clubs who are acting like fans and trying to win a league and then they they basically end their own model if that makes sense what do you think? no it, it's absolutely true and i suppose i'd say two things on that scottish football is probably really interesting in terms of fan ownership at the moment not only motherwell but we see what's going on at hearts and there's quite a few clubs at kind of lower down levels it's a viable option for them outside of celtic and rangers and the money that they pull in um, what you have to have in a fan's own club, which is absolutely essential in sport, as we know in Ireland, is governance. And when you have no money and you can't afford to make a mistake, the, the emphasis is on governance, doing everything right, checking it, double-checking it, double-checking it. Um, and like you said, when, when, there's a, when there's a bit more, more financing or there's a bit more around, it is harder to keep that emphasis on governance. So if I was to point to anything at Cork City, we probably didn't keep that focus on governance that we had initially. 
and I wouldn't point the finger at anybody particularly, I would just say it's a collective responsibility. The membership is, an, is responsible for what has happened and as a membership we have to, to pick ourselves up. We have to come together, we have to move on because like I said, we, we, we have, I think, and this is me taking my cork hat off, I do think we have unparalleled potential in the city and county that we're in, but we're also... Um, we also have to make sure that we're rowing in the same direction and that goes the same for any football club and I suppose the final thing I'd say really is there's a tendency to blame the model when there's an issue at a club and then I'd always go back going well in that case private ownership doesn't work at all does it because we've seen the problems that that's brought so you have to look at the circumstances and the people involved it's not the model the model itself is only a methodology and a structure of company so yeah yeah and Johnny, if you come on to you, I don't need to draw this up, but we talk about Galway and what the fans want. I do remember when the Saudis were going to buy Galway. I don't know whether you having a laugh, but you seem to be for it, at least on Twitter, for a small amount of time. Like, what was that like, that period? Has it got, like, did Galway fans want that to happen? Because Galway, let's face it, you know, aren't a team who we expect to, say, win the Premier Division. Um, and obviously, you know, it was, what was that period like? Because it's so recent. It was very strange because I was a kind of approached within the club to essentially leak the story in the first place and uh, you know I look back now and for somebody who's really it goes against all my kind of um, spiritual being to want uh, like an oil an oil wealth country to take over some something in Galway I voted for the Saudi investment and I had to look back and I remember you know some it was like 83 17 or something the vote um, percent and um, I do remember you know in the room that night kind of arrogantly looking down on the people who made impassioned pleas for the retention of a fan-owned model. Um, and these were people that I would have kind of, uh, uh, to borrow an analogy, like soldiered through the trenches with, going to games in the first division. We've never really been much good. We've essentially won nothing since I've supported them 20 years. We've won nothing. like. Yeah. Um, um, and, and that night I voted for the Saudi investment because with a kind of a glib... Um, acceptance that if, if the Saudis, I mean, and I've been reading about the way money is spent in Saudi Arabia where a king will just give his, all his sons and daughters, and that, that's usually a lot of sons and daughters, he just give them all a billion each, and he wouldn't even be considered lavish. So my thought was, well, if the Saudis are going to throw money at something, I don't mind if it's investing in Go United. The one thing I will say to defend myself on that was, Go United doesn't have anything. It has no, it doesn't have a ground, doesn't have any real tangible assets, including the players, so my, my attitude was, if they throw money at this, and I'm wary that it will go wrong, if it does go wrong, we can't be in a much worse situation than we are right now, which is basically a first division club with not that much going for it. And I, I feel regretful that um, I followed the advice of the people there that said they'd vetted them, they'd gone over to Riyadh, they could vouch for their apparent decency and good intentions. But I mean, it fell apart almost as quickly as the Super League. I mean, it was literally days or weeks, it was gone, and there was... It was just, it just, it was almost like it, it was airbrushed from history, you know, and uh, I voted for it because I thought it was a pragmatic thing to do, and they were ostensibly going to invest in youth and all that, but um, now I think, I, you know, I was, I was wrong. And, what, and, like, and when we get to that point, like, about, I suppose, like, what people want, like, is it, is it the, do you think it's the case, and, like, Neve mentioned the point, or, or alluded to it, like, in League of Ireland, do you think it's the case that there's half the clubs are members owned because there is no money to be made, mm. and that this is what keeps people out, that we look at someone like Peak Six, who've come in, and you know they haven't invested in anything and they're now i think they're touching on a loss now overall and that's going to get bigger this year by the looks of it and they'll probably leave again and again you know we've seen this time and time again in, in league of ireland that people come in to great fanfare and whether it's you know 
uh, Ollie Byrne as an individual it was probably the best and worst thing that ever happened to Shells I think most people would agree mm. with like do you think that's the reason why, why big money seems to come into the League of Ireland and go quite quickly that it's, it's just not there to be made or it doesn't have the glamour where someone might stay in another league and make a loss for the glamour or the ego that League of Ireland just doesn't have either I, I, th- I think it's been criminally underinvested in. I, I think Dermot Desmond, you know, he's late to the party. You know, the Peak Six investments, I mean, the, the, the true kind of intentions of that now, maybe it's evolved over time, but I don't think they have actually much interest in making money from it anymore. But I do think there is potential for the League of Ireland. I think it's a grossly underachieving league in terms of, you know, the, the FAI money for prize money, the FAI investment, government investment has been tragically bad. And, you know, it's only now that UEFA money is making it a sustainable model where, you know, I look at the costs of running the League of Ireland football teams, I don't consider it much at all. I think we, we've an attitude to this country where we're very small-minded in terms of what we spend in football because we've never had a football industry. And, you know, I, I, do, I do remember Kevin Vanigan saying about Bose, you know, are we a football club anymore? You know, and I, I think that's a beautiful thing because when I go to Bose games, um, you know, I look around at the people. I feel, I feel something that renders the football something of an aside. I see the work that has been done and if you go to a football community where um, a lot of the people will be upset if the team loses but it's not the be all and end all because they'll meet people, they'll meet new friends, they'll introduce the next generation to it um, and maybe they'll, they'll get to know people who will help them out in life and I think that's what a club can be. And the League of Ireland is in a very special place now because we have a lot of proper community clubs and this year in Galway um, I was asked to be a media officer um, and obviously I was like, why would I do this? Um, then I reckoned on it and I was like, I'm not actually that busy in the pandemic for one thing. And secondly, I was told there were 20 volunteers who wanted to work in the media officer role. None of them was doing it for money. None of them was doing it for any sort of um, you know, self-promotion, apart from wanting to be part of something. And um, I just thought that was beautiful. And I, I, I'm, I'm actually afraid of the League of Ireland becoming big because I know I'll be nostalgic for when it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. I think it is. I think we've always said about it is. It is a relatively countercultural activity, and I think it will probably remain that way. Although I do agree with you, there's loads of potential. It can grow. I think I think mass marketing sort of works, and people have bought into something that that isn't really real that they see on television as a sort of a show. And and I suppose like to that point, and to, and even like like do you think somehow with with members' own clubs? To me, like like being involved with Bowes now for for like basically a decade on the board, and now employed by the club, but. What seems to me sort of mirrors the, the kind of left in politics in that you need to get a big group of people to work together with, and everybody has different ideas and everyone wants what's best, but there's a lot of conflicting ideas. Whereas you take people on the right and, and the economically right, <clears throat> and they're all just gathered around trying to make money. So it sort of works because they'll drop everything else. But with a members own club, you, you, you have a turnover of people, you've got different skills, and you're constantly trying to keep going in the right direction. And, that, and that's a big challenge. And I think that as football clubs get, get bigger, that get, gets more complicated. And that's maybe easier when you're a small club. I, I think that's a very good point as well, because I, I can't speak from the Cork City experience, but I can readily see how fan-owned clubs would run into trouble. Because if you put a disparate group of people from different walks of life together, who some might just walk away because they'll think that the, the fringe from the other side has taken over or vice versa. And uh, I think it's probably not that hard to set up a fan-owned club because normally it'll happen out of some sort of problem or some sort of you know horrific previous regime. But like just like left-wing politics itself, you, it's very very hard for everyone to keep the whole thing going indefinitely and to come to some sort of agreement. And that's where I think the challenges will be because you know what's happened to Super League. I, I think almost 99% of people resent like massive massive wealth controlling the game. 
But when you actually put it practically to run in a club, I'm not so sure, Neve. I don't know from your experience, but I'm not so sure it's that easy. And look what happened to Cork, I guess. Like. Yeah, see, it's it's not easy because you have democracy involved. So you mm. don't have a, a narrow group of decision makers. You actually do have to engage with stakeholders and explain everything and answer to everything. And I remember being at uh, a meeting in Schalke, I think, actually, Gelsikirchen, they, they, um, we had a, a meeting and, and we had a new club from Bosnia, who which wouldn't typically be... Uh, from you know that side of the world and definitely not uh, demo you know I'm going to say um, it sounds a bit harsh but maybe not close as close to democracy as some other Western European countries if I put it to you that way and the question was like how, how do you how do you stop at people asking stupid questions at the AGM and you're like but that's democracy like that if you look at Dahl Aaron and you watch the questions and you're just like oh, Jesus like what's he asking that for or what's she asking that for democracy is hard because you're answerable to everybody mm-hmm. And the one really interesting thing that I suppose we can talk about now, but when um, I was part of the very first Forest Board in 2010, so there was this nine-day period where we had to find players, manager, training ground, the whole... It is insane we are are trying to document it because it's just... It was crazy what happened. But a few weeks into the season, the FAI brought us all up, like all hauled up to Abbottstown to more or less go, this is how you run a football club. But the most useful part of the session was when they brought in um, Jonathan Roach at Shamrock Rovers and then kind of went, we're just going to leave you now to talk to each other. (laughs) And what I remember most about what Jonathan said, and he was very right that day, he said, this sounds so great on paper, fan ownership taking over, you'll make the decisions, you'll have inputs. But people don't like it when they don't get what they want. And they will walk away, you will lose people on this journey, it's not for everybody. And you can say the same around any sort of a community entity. You have to be watchful of super volunteers that just take over and do everything. You have to kind of spread the workload. The volunteer management within League of Ireland clubs or you know, voluntary community groups, it's probably one of the biggest challenges because you want to harness the passion and the skills, but you need them to do it in a certain way to make the whole thing work. And it's a very delicate balance. So like to your point, it's kind of perceived, Johnny, that like a, you know, a cooperative club or a member-owned club or a fan-owned club is the easy option. It's actually not it's it's much harder there's much more management and you know kind of input and and discussion and dialogue the whole time um but the difference is to your point it, it knits people together much more and the irish supporters network ran a survey back in february just talking about you know how quickly did supporters want to come back to football um and needless to say everyone was pretty much 98 percent said we'll do anything any protocols anything we needed to get back but what was really interesting is when we asked people why the first reason was to support their club, very natural one. And the second reason was social and community. They wanted that bond, that Friday night, you know, match, that link where you sit with people. And if you ask people, you know, where were, you know, what's your favourite memory if your team was lucky enough to win something? Sorry, Johnny. Um, like, it's usually the people you're with. <laughs> we're like, and it's usually, well, we still have Paris, Johnny. <laughs> um, we went over to see Derry City play PSG. <laughs> Just for the crack. Um, when you could do that. But, like... You know, we like you. You have that link, and I just remember my my favorite memory in football is us getting promoted back to the Premier in Talca because I was standing next to my brother, just like like standing frozen, screaming like, and um, you know. So they're the things that will actually link you in, and that's the stuff that's you can't pay for, and you can't replicate, and you lose when it becomes about budget, you know, away tickets, Super League, you know, that sort of corporate cleansed experience that the Premier League is today. And do you think, to lead on from that, Gavin, do you think the points Neve's making, and like Johnny, do, with League of Ireland, if we want League of Ireland, say, to get the 10,000 fans at each game, Sarah, so say even 6,000, say an average of five or 6,000, which is feasible, I think, for sure, within 10 years, do you think 
is the league more likely to do that with more members-owned clubs or less members-owned clubs? And, and why would you think that would be? Like, do you think that ultimately people are looking mm -hmm. at a model that they're used to internationally and they want to see that here and they want to see, they want to see the private money come in and do things quickly and so it's provided to them, it's a transaction, I pay my money and I get this product. Or do you think they're willing to put in the effort and the difficulty of owning something and putting in the time and maybe taking a bit longer but having something to be maybe proud of? I think the, I think the latter. I think it's probably more likely if they're public and community-owned clubs just because, I mean, look, you will be much able, uh, in a much better position to comment on this than I, but like, is it, are you more likely to get government money and that level of public in, uh, investment into that infrastructure in that way, I, I mean, that's how that's how I would look at it. And I mean, we only need to take the example of Dundalk. Like, I mean, Oriel Park is crying out for renovation. Like, I mean, the level of um, there are so many possibilities there. And like, they have you know, in relative terms, of league, they have very, very wealthy owners, and they've they've just not invested in it because they don't see the immediate return on that. So I think. That I mean, I think that's kind of proof that that the uh, the private model won't immediately invest in infrastructure because they don't see the uh, the long the, that instant return. So I think I think probably uh, that the public ownership model is better on that. I, I just want to go back to something that Neve said because when I talked about recalibrating success, I mean success is it winning trophies this season and next season, or is it success is success just making sure your club is going to be there in fifty years time? And I think public owner public ownership is the best way to guarantee that you know i think you have to people have to accept that we may not be the most competitive in this transfer window or we may not win the league this season but we'll still be around and we'll still feel like um we'll still feel that community spirit and togetherness and be be something around which we our community and our society can revolve um and i Neve made a very very good point earlier on where she said when the when something goes wrong in a public or members own club everyone always blames the system. It just goes to show that, you know, the public system, the members' own system just doesn't work. Whereas when things go wrong at a private, privately owned club, it's always the individual that owns it. Is, you know, he or she is the fault that this has failed. But like the Super League is proof that the private, private owned model doesn't work anymore because just because you're rich and wealthy doesn't endow you with any great level of intelligence. And as you see for the Super Club, these people who are prone to moronic ideas can just take your club away from you, you know? I mean, that's that's what I talk about recalibrating success as, you know, well, okay, maybe, you know, we can get, um, we can sell our club to a private owner, we might win the league this season and next season and be in Europe for three years, but there's no, there's no safeguards against you potentially losing your club. Yeah, totally, and, and it's, it's funny what you mentioned, like, I think it was said, like, about not owning property or not having things to, like, what nearly, like, the closest bows came to going out of existence was that the, the members got caught up in the value of the property and that became this kind of utopia we can sell the property and, and that kind of and again that was voted for like I suppose like with Galway the members voted for that people you know that's it's forgotten sometimes that was a democratic decision that would we'd sell the Mount and this would be a good idea and it was, it was a terrible idea that would have been an absolute shambles like if that, if that had gone through ah, the, totally. the airport or whatever you'd be rich out by the airport and the money would be gone in 10 years and then you'd have no one there mm. and I think like Daily Mount being a municipal ownership and, but to get to that level like when we've seen it's often interesting when I think of the Super League like one I think there's two points and one is like seeing all these Irish people like and hearing them call in I don't like knocking Premier League fans but this is disgraceful this, these are our clubs and I'm sort of like well if this was a, st a staged process for these people who want to extract as much money you're a bit of the way down the path you're somebody who's, who's an international fan, who's not really related to the club directly, and they're, they've realised, they're probably the first market we've realised, you know, Norway and Ireland, maybe Denmark, okay, we can do this and we can do it globally. 
So there are people who brought about, they brought it down that pathway a bit. But if you try and say that to somebody, then you, you kind of, they'll attack you. No, I'm, a, I'm a real fan. They feel like they're a, a real fan. And if they feel like that, are they? Like, are they a real fan or are they, are they part of the problem? If you're, a, if you're a guy and you bring up your kids in Dublin to follow Liverpool, like, are you doing something that's good for football or bad for football? Or why do you think well, they, they are part of the problem, yeah. Like, that, obviously, that strikes at the heart of a problem where the Irish game hasn't been good enough to attract enough people, which is, which is one thing. But, you know, if you were to allow football clubs to run themselves whichever way they wanted, and I think this is the problem with the Super League, a small minority of clubs around the world have far more global attention than anyone else and that means that if they went pay-per-view per game and they could dictate their own ticket prices, and I don't mean people going to the games which is becoming less and less relevant they could basically completely dominate and um, it'd be like capitalism itself where a tiny amount would have like 90 percent of the wealth um, and that's because it's global and like if I go to a Liverpool game then there in itself is a contradiction because I'm and like I go to a Liverpool game maybe once every few years but like I, half the people I talk to or witness don't seem to be from Liverpool, and if you the taxi driver will tell you ticket prices are insane now. We we so like do do you want to be um, part of supporting a club anymore that's become so big that like being from the city itself is almost an irrelevance? And I've sympathy like I was brought up supporting Liverpool. My brother would see, would probably be as disappointed when Liverpool loses anyone in the world. But they are part of the problem because they don't go to support their local team. And football is now about your global audience. Um, but my, my question then would be, well, what's the difference in Liverpool and Manchester United? Like, none. There's, there's no difference. They both actually wear red. They've, they've nothing. Like, like, how many Irish players even play for them anymore? Why do you support them? What, what's the connection? It's just not there anymore. And I would hope that the last week or two really got a lot of people in Ireland, particularly people around my age or older, second-guessing themselves, like, what is the point of this? Like, we're pawns in a big game here. Yeah. I think people I think people support the English clubs because I think it's something around which they've built relationships or friendships be it it's often intergenerational well. yeah but it's often intergenerational <laughs> like like I mean English football can be a good solvent for you to have a conversation with your father that you wouldn't have you know if you were totally. facing each other you have to be facing the TV to bounce the conversation back off each other so I, I don't I don't like that rhetoric where you say that they're part of the problem I think that they they can see things um, in those English football clubs because it's, it's been in their family or it's among their friends or that's how they build, uh, build friendships in college or in school or whatever. So I, I think that they're getting something out of that that they could also get out of their local club. Mm. And I think that's why I like the members, uh, the public ownership of a local club, because it's just an easier sell mm. that way. You know, you, mm. can, you, can, you, you feel you have an emotional stake in, in, the, uh, in the English club or whatever. You can have it here as well yeah. and it'll be cheaper and you'll get to go to the game and you'll feel more a part of it because you won't feel... Like, you can... It's a strange kind of dissonance, whereas I think people can go to Anfield every second Saturday and know that they're seen as a consumer, but still enjoy it. I think people have that kind of dissonance. Um, but I, I like the public, public membership, publicly owned uh, concept for League of Ireland because it's just an easier sell to say, look, this is, a, this is something around which you can build relationships and can be important kind of staging posts in your life. And you can, you know, it's a, it won't cost you much to pay a monthly membership and you'll really have a stake here because you'll really be valued because we need you, basically. Mm. And the, the challenge we have as being League of Ireland and not just member-run clubs is that we have to find a way of gently pointing out that live football is much better than watching it on TV, but doing it in a way that's actually welcoming because we tend to be like, well, I'm better than you. Why don't you come and watch my mm. football club? Which is, is going to be a hard one to get over. Um, I have a particular memory. I was invited to go over and speak at FC United at an event and I was all in my city gear in a 
in an airport in Ireland on a Saturday morning and you're just like, it's the most horrendous experience because it's just a plane full of people from Cork going to various clubs and they're all looking at me like I was the problem, you know, and you're kind of going, the only place that you actually feel normal, I'm going to say, is when you when you play in Europe and your clubs play in Europe and yeah. you visit wherever you go and they're like, oh, this is your club. Whereas in Ireland, you're like, well, who's your real club? And you're like, I don't, I, I'm only a Cork City fan. I, um, um, you know, and that that is the perspective that we have to kind of remember as well, that actually what we have, and I, I hate using the word, but it's a really authentic experience still, and we do need to protect it. And part of that is, you know, building a better supporter experience, building better facilities, kind of, you know, and I, I definitely think there's improvements around how it's stewarded, guard or presence, you know, and something that I talk about very often is, um, I brought a good friend of mine, and she's she's a she'd be an English football fa- fan first and foremost. But brought her to a game where Cork City were playing in Dublin, and you know we were greeted by the riot police. We got she got searched, her bag got searched. She was a bit like, what the hell? Um, you know, you had to sit down. Sure, you weren't allowed to leave the ground. You know, you were kept back, and you arrive out, and you see you know um, public public orders. Gardy again and the next day we did and I hate to say it loudly but we went to see Munster play at Lansdowne Road and it was a completely different experience you could have alcohol you could bring it to your seat there was no separation you weren't searched your bag wasn't searched and we have to think about the experience of actually going to match night because we have an amazing game that we have to start being proud of and start talking about and talking about the potential um, community involvement is integral in it, I would say, and I think member-run clubs work because we have that sense of attachment in Ireland. But we have to start building on that potential because I think we're we're very quick to talk ourselves down. And just one thing that that was mentioned that I thought it was worth, you know, when you're talking about um, Barcelona and Real, very few people realise that the Spanish government in the 90s actually brought in a law that prevents any more member-run clubs going into the top tier in Spain. So it's something that uh, FASFE, the Spanish National Supporters Organization, has been trying to change for a long time. And in response to that kind of Real Barcelona and the money and the billions and the debt, there's actually a growing movement at grassroots level in Spain. They refer to themselves as football popular, so people's the people's game. And that, when I first got to know people in that movement, um, there was maybe six, seven clubs, it's now 18. And there's one unit, unit my Spanish is not great, Unionista de Salamanca on the verge of getting into the second division in Spain. So they can't actually get promoted even no matter how they do because they're a member run club and you have to be a, a public private entity to play in the top tier outside of the four clubs that are already there. And like that's really basic way of showing how you can prevent kind of this collective power that is people coming together and then you know when you do that there's this counter movement that's just growing and some of the work that that those clubs is doing is immense that's amazing and do you think there's any like would there be capacity to do something like that where you could have a league where clubs could come together and say you know what we're going to only play member-owned clubs we're going to forgo our european places because that's playing the global game anyway and we're going to bring people in like would it need something like that another another point that gavin mentioned i always think this it's hard to frame this but to me, it often seems a lot of people I know follow the Premier League. It's, it's almost like I don't mean just like in a in, in a kind of dismissive way or anything, but it seems like a social crutch at times because anyone can talk about it because it's on everywhere all the time. So you kind of have a pointless, meaningless conversation and say, "Oh, did you see that this player earns this?" And it means nothing, but everyone can have a bit of input. It's like everyone feels safe because this is a thing we can all discuss, you know. And 
it's like, like, do you think there's maybe a fear amongst people, and, or is this like the dawn of television? You like definitely played a huge role in the diminishing crowds in Irish football. That's for sure. Like I think in, in the early 1960s, there was like a television set for maybe 40 percent of the population, and by the start of the 70s, it was 85 percent, and it mirrors the decline of crowds. There's other reasons too, but did the like more and more methods of communication, and like WhatsApp, Facebook, Twitter, the television maybe as the first major one, just re begin to diminish people's communication skills. So the idea of going to a game. Is maybe something that's makes them anxious. Is that, is that a crazy thing to think? I, I I think you're kind of on the right angle there in that most people watch their football team through the TV, and they increasingly watch it uh, on the TV with nobody at the game. So they've had a year of watching football or whatever it is and communicating basically through social media and WhatsApp. So like actually going going to a Bose game has probably, for example, that's become kind of a counterculture thing because a lot of people wouldn't really know what it's like. And I, I, I asked you this the other day in our podcast, said, who are these people that you attract to the Bulls games? Because are they lapsed fans? Are they new fans? Are they non-nationals? You know, and like, the League of Ireland has a great potential to do that because you can go to a game with 3,000 people, go to the bar beforehand um, and see smiling faces and realise that this is a, an experience of people meeting that's almost lost because we're living, we're living lives uh, uh, you know, as individuals. And, I, th I think what we haven't mentioned yet is the lockdown. The lockdown has been incredibly good in so many ways. It's made us appreciate what we have locally, what we have as people rather than consumers as well. Where like I've just, I mean, I haven't bought clothes. Or I haven't been to a shop to buy, you know, uh, even a pair of jeans in, in a year now. And I was like, why was I wrapped up in consumerism? And now I'm like, I, what I want to do is, is little things locally, uh, be, being, you know, do things that nature has to offer, including going to watch my local football team. And I, I don't know if a lot of people, I think we actually have to promote the idea of going to games to people because they don't know what it's like. And a lot of them who even go to England, I mean, the atmosphere of Premier League games is absolutely crap. It wouldn't, yeah. like the, the best atmosphere I've, I've been at in games has been League of Ireland and Turkey and maybe like Italy to an extent, certainly not England, because it's just everyone is sitting and it's like, it's like you're, if you sit down now at a Premier League game as you do, you're, 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 you're not part of it, you're just kind of a spectator, you know, you're watching and you're observing, but it's, it's sanitised and that's what we have for the League of Ireland. And I, I think your point is, like, I'm not sure I fully agree with it, but I, I think people need to experience that because we're living lives on our phones now. Essentially, everyone is on their phone. I spoke to horse race trainer the other day who told me he was on his phone for seven hours that day. So adults have become completely addicted to their phone. And it, it, it could be something that we can offer now. Go to a football game and actually meet people. Um, because people aren't doing that, really. They're not, most people do not support football to going to games. When you see that's a great point with the phones, I often try to compare it like for like. When you see a corner in the Premier League, if you see a clip on TV, everyone has their phone. Everybody, you'll never see that in League of Ireland. Mm. You just don't see it. And I don't know whether that's because the, you know, the players aren't superstars or it hasn't cost as much to go there. But people are actually, they're, they're, they're experiencing it. And even people who go to the Premier League, I think they don't experience it because they're filming everything. But I think and it's you're because not it's expensive. Well either, but you're not like if you if you if you see a guy taking a corner and maybe he's like one of the best players in the world. What does your photo actually do other than show you a photo that you can get online anyway? It's just oh, I was there. Whereas like the League of Ireland, you know, like for example, after the Rovers Bowes game, like I was texting the referee within half an hour, an hour, and he was saying. Kind of, I watched it back there and not even sure myself. But I was like, we don't, you don't have that. You know what I mean? Like that's how, that's what we have to sell. It, we're, all, it is of the people, and we are the people in yeah. the League of Ireland. And nobody's on crazy wages, really. Yeah, it's a real interesting one, and it's something that I've mentioned to the association or the FAI a few times. But the Swedish league is definitely something for the League of Ireland to look at, and I'd actually highly recommend 
any of the derby matches in terms of atmosphere they're just mad like absolutely mad but they did a strategic review a couple of years back when they were really struggling the Premier League was the most popular league in Sweden and Swedish football was unpopular it was perceived to have crowd trouble it was perceived to be kind of lower of the lower and the the CEO that's there now Matt Zenkvist um, just commissioned a, a, a report and it was very simple he, you know the football was looking out and going why don't you like me instead of talking to the people outside including supporters and going bring them in and make them part of the decision process look after the supporters give them a good match night experience make people want to go to the Swedish league and in in the years since I think they topped a million supporters last time around and it's growing year on year and year Premier League is no longer the the most popular league in Sweden and it was because they looked at who they were, they gave themselves an honest review, and then they tapped into their strengths, which was the atmosphere at games. And if you talk to anybody who goes to a live match, it is the atmosphere. And you get that at league games as well. It's just, we have to be really careful how you develop that and not smother it as well in other ways. With, totally. You know, uh, um, um, and facilities do play into that as well. If you want different parts of the community to come into those games, you need the facilities for them to be there as well. Do you know, just, just a simple point, like a Galway United fan a few years ago died and I only, I never spoke to him and I, I only knew who he was when, um, it, when his photo came online or whatever and they said Emmanuel Kyo has died and here's a photo of him and I, I saw him and he, he'd become a club volunteer at that stage, still had never, never met him. The reason I knew him was because every week I saw him with his son at the games and it was always, and I saw his son growing up with him. And the son became from a five-year-old to a six-year-old to a teenager who's probably in his 20s now. And I could see him grown and, you know, looking more like his father every week. And I always used to observe them because there were maybe like a few rows beside where I would go to the games. And that's a beautiful thing. And you can't do that in England anymore because it's too expensive, effectively. It's not a working-class game for, to go to watch your Premier League team because you can't bring your son because it's too expensive. And the age profile of people going to games in England has gone way up because it's not affordable. And League of Ireland, you can watch families grow up together because it's affordable. And like, you know, I, I spoke to Damien O'Mara at the game the other night. He loves bringing his daughter to Bowes games. Um, and, and that's, I think that's a beautiful thing that we, we have, we can cherish that, you know? And do you think though it'll check, like, what I was trying to get to, should there be government, like look at it in Germany, in Germany the, the, the laws sort of actually can be challenged because Leipzig was reading earlier today that the 50 plus one model in Germany is more, it's, it's a collective way of thinking, it seems to be in Germany, mm. but it's legally doesn't really stand up if someone wants to come in. Uh, and that seems to be the issue with trying to bring in like something like that in the Premier League. But do you think, like Gavin, do you think governments need to, need to do that? Like if you were to say League of Ireland, like Johnny's example, I think, or what he outlines there is totally correct. But if more people started to go on, started to go to games and they were spending a bit more, if you've privately owned clubs, they'll ultimately, you know, they're at the very far end of what maybe, you know, the European Super League became. Because, mm. So do you need to bring in checks and balances? And would, would fans take it? Like would fans of privately owned League of Ireland club today take it? a fan-owned model because they seem to give it up a lot like this just seems mm. to happen like we looked at say Rex and they just they got it and then they give it away yeah Portsmouth is another example yeah. where at one point in 2013 like they had been through the ringer and at one point in 2013 they were the biggest supporter owned club in England and then they gave it away in 2017 to mm. a Disney executive or something um, uh, which is uh, high on symbolism in, in itself so I don't know, I mean, that's it. like, go back to recalibrating what success is. I mean, like, traditionally, like, I would have looked at membership-owned clubs as ideal. Like, that's a kind of, that, I mean, that would be, that's in a perfect world, that would, that's the model you want for your football club. But we don't live in a fo uh, perfect world because 
you've always got this tension between a fo fo what a football club should be and the industry in which it is in, which is you know the hyper-capitalist industry. So I, I think there needs to be a cultural change among supporters as well of uh, to realise that maybe uh, maybe not winning the league this year will be okay if we feel we have more of a stake in our club and ultimately we know that this won't be taken away from us because I think the most I, up until the Super League thing I would have been in that mode of thinking but when you realise the Super League happens it's like these people can just take your club away yeah. and they can like they can change everything they can mm. effectively rip it out of the community and tear up a, more than a century of history that is a scary scary thing like you have so much you've had a lot to gain in the short term but like in the long term all this this is a possibility looming in the background and look there's been privately owned clubs who've been owned by you know, benevolent people and they've been great for the communities but as a system you just have so much more security with a publicly owned club and whereas once I looked at it as like a publicly owned club can't thrive in the industry that it's currently in so you have to go private. Now I'm thinking okay let's take as a starting point that the club must be publicly owned and then you change the industry around it. And if there, now look, it's such a difficult thing to get over the line because there's so much money at stake. Mm. But if that happened, like, the game would be so much better. There'd be so much, competitive balance would be much better across the board. And the ironic thing is, like, clubs make more, um, the more competitive the league, generally the clubs will make more money. Like, mm -hmm. the reason the Premier League clubs make more money than the Spanish clubs and the Italian clubs is because more people will pay to watch the product because it's more competitive. So if you could just... I don't know. Get them, get people to that get people to wake up. And you think, that, like, and Eve mentioned this earlier. I think there's a load of truth in the fact that clubs, like in Germany, it was funny about all the clubs with the 50 plus one model. Is they all started out as multi-sport clubs. Mm. I think Bayern yeah. were like the champions of chess for years in in, in Germany. Um, I know basketball. I think uh, I think St. Pauli are quite good at basketball. Yeah, and it's a really interesting thing because like the, the original Bose Memo on Arts when you read it talks about running, jumping, wrestling, yeah. hurling. Like it mentions like 40 sports. I know we played for a while, there was cricket and there was polo or there's a few other yeah. things. But it seems that the more you kind of, there's too much of a focus, and maybe it was driven by the media, on the male team and the male football team where all the money is. Mm. And that if they win, it's success. If they lose, it's failure. But the more you have like a women's team, disability teams, futsal, you bring in your youth teams and maybe even other sports. And I think like that other sport model is something that hasn't really been done in Ireland and I think there's maybe, mm. maybe great potential in bringing other sports in. I think so and a lot of the time when you hear 50 plus 1 people are talking about countries that have had 50 plus 1 forever so they don't really know any different and I'd say maybe five six years ago there was a push in Sweden you know when I was before that Swedish league push where the clubs weren't doing so well they weren't competitive in Europe they were being beaten by Irish clubs a lot that was their standard of that's not so good um, but they, they had a discussion about whether to remove 50 plus one and the supporters actually had a campaign to retain it. So when it's there, it is your, it's easier to retain something you have, I think, rather than implement a whole new um, you know, set of rules and regulations across an industry that's well advanced. So when we look at the Premier League and you know, there was very, very brief discussions of Boris doing something and you're just like, all right. Um, but they had the opportunity for a long time to do something, but retrospectively trying to implement something like 50 plus one would be extremely difficult and we've never seen it happen ever, anywhere. What was interesting though, is that in response to the Super League, something that happened that you could actually go, oh, actually maybe that could work as an interim, as they're saying, 
you know, obligation on, on clubs to consult their, their season ticket holders and get any significant vote past a season ticket holder. So not a share per se, but going to that German thinking of membership and a right to have a say. And that is closer to what the Germans and Swedish and Austrians are thinking rather than, you know, ownership and, and having that share, that kind of golden share. And I suppose that's that's kind of the the the, the panacea is to actually go, you want dialogue, but meaningful dialogue. And if clubs have that as a start, that is a really good start. But in a, in a kind of a cooperative or a member one club, you have a right to it. Like it's part of how it works. And one of the discussions around, say, the Cork City vote and the sale option was, um, you know, the, the pros and cons of both sides. And you had people going, oh, well, I'm not sure now I'm going to go to the meeting and decide on the night. And I'm not sure this model works. And you're like but you're going to the meeting and you get to have a say, that's the model, you know? So I think there's probably, you know, there needs to be a kind of a refocus on the benefit of including people. And we've seen it say with the FEI governance review as well, they've struggled a little bit to get that kind of stakeholder engagement and that dialogue going because they're kind of pushing through with reforms. But if you want reforms and if you want change to last in the long term, you have to bring people with you. It doesn't work otherwise. And how, how would you, like, given the sale hasn't gone through in Cork, like, I, I hope it doesn't, and, I, like, and you hope it doesn't, it mm. sounds me. how will you feel about Cork, like, you know, comparing how you feel about Cork today, and obviously on, on the pitch things aren't going well, but the club will definitely, you know, will we'll back in the Premier League, will win trophies, that, that's a given. How will you feel about Cork if, it's, if, if Cork is sold? Will you have the same, like, will your relationship with Cork City change? How would you... It's a really interesting one and I think it probably goes to the Super League argument a little bit and also these instances where we see clubs defending these horrible owners that potentially are coming in like Qatar and Saudi Arabia and all these countries where you're kind of going but what do they want and there's a part of us as football fans that will defend or argue absolutely any argument as long as it's what we want for our club. Um, and I remember a cu- couple of people saying, but like look at Preston's community programme, it's brilliant, that's what's ahead of us and you're like Preston's community programme is funded by their trust which is funded by the fans fund which is nothing to do with the owners of the club so you can you can kind of track it back um I I don't know Daniel is the the honest answer um having seen the work and the people involved and even the people we've lost over the years it's just devastating that vote but (laughs) I can understand it in a way how do I feel about my club I'm not going to have another club I now comprehend the people like Cork Hibs and Cork Celtic that never came back to another club it's it's you know, it's Cork City or nothing, really, you know. Yeah. So um, I, I would think that maybe it'll take time to connect, but like you, I think um, for now it's fan-owned um, and we'll just have to see where it goes. You look at Dundalk, and it's a bit of a crude example because it is a bit of a basket case, but Dundalk's glory days were from the start of when they were on the scrap heap, and they mm. were the glory days. The glory days were obviously culminating in a ridiculous run in Europe, but the glory days were saving the club. And that's when the volunteers had a great sense of worth and it's only since foreign owners came in the volunteers have started moving away from the club. Mm. And there's a tragic irony in that, that success really was the start of Dundalk's problems. Mm. Where, and this is the problem with the volunteer ethos. If you have some foreign owner who's in either to run it as a plaything or to run it to make money or to run it for some other reason that doesn't really have anything to do with the club itself, why would I volunteer and why would I feel an attachment to my own club? And that's that the Dundalk example is an extreme warning to Irish clubs who might want to vote for a Saudi takeover like I did of where it can go. And what would you, if you could reverse back now and Galway had just won the last three Premier Leagues, would you, would you, would you See, still vote the same way? Like, but like winning, but like if we won with no Galway players and like, I mean, it, like I was talking to Damien Delaney on the radio about this and I think other people have put up, 
Roman Abramovich is this like great thing that happened to Chelsea. Like, was it? Like, this man, like, how did he make his money? And he's just throwing money. At. And then you have owners who don't go to games, like, and reba you know, re rebalance their debts and stuff. Like, who cares if you win under that, you know, system? Like, where you might even have one local player playing, and people who went to the games for years are now priced out of it. Who cares if you're winning? Like, I don't want to win at all costs. I want to win at a cost that, that I'm favourable with. I want to win in a fair league, you know, and I, I want to, like, I still think the League of Ireland is quite fair, because even though Dundalk made all that money legitimately in Europe, they haven't kicked on. Rovers in 2011 got all the European money, didn't kick on at all. So the league has been quite fair, but I don't want to win at all costs. I, like, if, if Galway United never won the league, but we were a, you know, a great sustainable development club rooted in the community, which does things for the community, um, you know, that would be more important to me than winning. You know, like, great if we win, but like, I, I don't get to eat the trophy. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think that, that's totally true. We, we, when we went back, like, Bowes 2011, 2012, we, 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 you know, we were very close to going, like, we were balance sheet and solvent for a while, and, and things were really bad. And, uh, and we tr it was exactly that. We tried to say, how do we get more people involved with the club? Well, they have to feel we're not going to win anything in the next few years. That's not going to happen. Uh, and, and we haven't won anything since then. Um, and we were saying we've got to make something that people feel a sense of pride in, that they feel that they're a part of, and that ultimately whether we win or lose football games, that they want to be associated with us, they feel that, that they feel it's something positive towards us, and that they might buy a shirt or hopefully come to games or maybe buy a season ticket or a membership, but it has to start with that level of respect for the entity, yeah. and that if that respect wasn't there... I think, I think it has thing. to be highlighted as well that being support or member clubs or cooperatives it doesn't mean you're not successful that's, commercially. that's exactly the exactly and what i was going to say you, it's almost this notion that because you're basically running it as yeah. the people's club you can't go united is basically run by like normal blokes at the moment but the, it's running a very with good sponsor yeah. and it's not that you can't be as neat as you know like cork city's front to shirt is, is ucc and the reason that we we got that at the time was it was not for profit we actually have education as a priority in our constitution, which is highly unusual. We were able to point to the, the governance report and the research and the sustainability research and the involvement of volunteers. That is why there is an agreement with UCC. It just happened we were a League of Ireland football club. But the sort of how you bring that alive is that all of our underage, our kids, I think it's 17s and 19s now, when they sign up every year, and it goes same with the ladies, I believe, you have to attend an open night at UCC and talk about college prospects. So you can do football a different way. It's just that if you will listen to what's out there and listen to what people are telling you, and if you only look at the Premier League, you think that there's only one way to do it. And it's, you know, uh, you know, this kind of commercial experience that we all see that you can only get a certain type of beer and you can only get a certain type of thing. And, you know, I've been lucky enough in my role at ST Europe to be able to attend Champions League finals and European finals. And it's just such a advertisement bombardment sponsorship and look that's part of the game but then does it does it dribble down to the rest of us you know and where is that competitive balance which is looking after the entirety of football because at the end of the day i think those super league clubs very much forgot or just conveniently wiped it out of their heads they don't survive without everything else below it yeah. and it's like the league of ireland as well we have to look out for the greater game you know around us in ireland as well because you you don't work without each other it is a an ecosystem you know and do you think, like, for all the reasons you mentioned there with UCC, like, at Bowes, what's been really interesting, sort of, sort of didn't see it happening until it, was, until it was sort of happening, and then you realise it. We used to go and meet, whether it was commercial partners, and you'd say to them, all right, we're going to be on TV four times, and uh, we're going to have this many people through the gate, and, uh, you know, you might get this many photos in the mirror or something. And then the more we've gone, the direction we've gone, you meet people and they don't, they don't care where we finish. They actually don't care. They don't care if their games are on TV. What they care about is that we have a set of values that they think are important and they want to buy into them. 
Mm. And, and we found that with DCU in particular, moving the DCU, like the, the, the president of DCU and the, and, and the senior people there, they were really, uh, like really kind of complimentary and kind of, they valued a lot the work we do in the community, the fact that we have mm. men's and women's team in the Premier Division, the fact we have an amputee team, and all this work we do. And it's, it's sort of like, yeah, they'll be happy if we win a trophy, but they're not getting involved with Bose because they want us to win something. Mm. They're getting involved in an entity, I suppose, like, and, and maybe to, like, to, bring the, to bring it to a close, like, do, is the League of Ireland, like, I grew up playing GA and I think the GA model is brilliant. And, and I think that structurally, and like, what would you think of this, Gavin, is that they, it, like, I said this to the last few FAI CEOs, like, whenever a new CEO come in, which has been a lot lately, they, they try and meet everyone in the league and kind of have a chat. And think of someone like Jonathan Hill coming in, like the biggest participation game in the country he, he walks into, also the biggest mess, obviously, mm. but other people that come into basketball or tennis and they'd come in and they'd say, right, I need to get my numbers up, I need more people playing my game. And he, he have the most numbers, but seems to be, t- they compete with each other at every level. So like I grew up playing for Nafina, and that was the club in the area, you know, kind of parts of Inglis, Glasnevin, a little bit into Ballymun, and then over the other side of Aaron's Isle, you know, in the middle of Inglis, you have Ballymun kickings above you. And you know, that's your club and you've good facilities because there's a large number of people playing for the club. And then you go to Dublin games and it's very clear that and it, it, everyone else playing the game, you've got your local competitors, but they're a bit away and ultimately you're all pushing in the same direction. And that gives the GAA power commercially, but also like with, with government to give funding. It has power, it can speak to people. Whereas football at every level is, I think there's 40 football teams in Finglas. Mm. You know, and some are three teams, some are seven, some are one. They're all competing for a small amount of facilities. They're fighting against each other. And that kind of goes the whole way up in football. Mm. And, and I think that if, that if we got that right and had that community model, that that could then bring us, to come right to the top in terms of fan-owned football clubs and have proper structures. Because we have the numbers that play the game. Mm. They just, they never seem to be able to speak to each other and go in the one direction. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the GA model is perfect for it. But like, sometimes I look at what you're talking about in football, but like, you must remember that the football that even survived here for decades is a kind of a miracle in itself, given the uh, official Ireland stance toward it. Um, but there's also one thing that you haven't touched about there, but is linked to your point, is like, there'll be people watching this who really want to go and support their League of Ireland club, there's just too many counties without a League of Ireland club, you know? Mm-hmm. I do think that there are probably too many t- teams in Dublin and like whatever, we can't be adding any more teams in Dublin. I know perhaps that maybe that nearly happened this year. So I think that, I think that's definitely something that, you know, from the ground up, that's a very difficult thing to achieve. But maybe if you bring a League of Ireland club and put it in somewhere which doesn't have one, maybe that can feed it in itself and it's an easier thing to do. And then just one thing, very interesting, what you said there is like, from like commercial partners and brand partners, are very are more interested in seeing bows more active in the community than they are getting you know uh, media coverage or whatever. I'd love to see that uh, that reflected by the governing body. Like you'd love to see a metric of um, rewards, i.e., money for some kind of uh, community development or community um, some kind of immersion in the community. Because I think I think that would actually you know that would promote more of what you're talking about there, and that would promote the benefits. Of the member-owned club, so that's kind of a, that's a kind of a tangent. So, so kind of remove the rebalance the prize money because prize money now is funny in that it's given the clubs who generally have the most. So you give them more to then cause a loop that it's all the money's directed back at the team who made the money, and it, it seems mm. to just go yeah. away from them. A, a yeah, kind of community that model. goes back to what I said at the beginning, like recalibrating success. So mm-hmm. it's like you, you want like a mass movement for everyone to wake up and realize, okay, we're actually better off if everyone is a member-owned club here. This is a much healthier sport. 
with much better competitive balance and it'll be much more enjoyable for us all. And by the way, it'll be cheaper for us to go. I mean, that's the, that's the obvious thing. Um, but that's a very difficult thing to achieve straight away. But like you look at, you know, could the FAI divvy up some of the prize money to go to uh, the clubs who uh, have the greatest community impact? That's one small example of what could be done. Um, I think that's maybe those, begin, beginning those small steps when people can see a tangible reward for the members' own club, I think would be uh, would definitely be a, a step in the right direction. Yeah, and, mm. and just a final question or two, Johnny. That, that idea that we need to you know take a rugby model and maybe like this is bringing Gav's point out a bit further. But what about two Dublin teams and, and having a team in the Midlands and you know there are teams there. But what about amalgamating no, some clubs? No, definitely not. No, um, there. You know, I've I've always thought like oh it's kind of crap that UCD are in the league. They don't bring anything, but like they're in the league because there isn't a better team to kick them out of it, and that's been the problem. So like if there are too many teams in Dublin. I've never, I've never agreed with that because the population of Dublin has been roughly reflected um, by the teams in, in Dublin, which is generally around six, which is give or take a third of the Republic's population, or a quarter, which is effectively what it is. And a lot of football played in Dublin, that's grand, but um, we, ha we have a very strange, unique country, Ireland, you know, and it, it annoys me when um, I hear kind of this idea of unionists about like this kind of Gaelic South where if you look at if you look at the GAA is a perfect idea of how contradictory we are in that it's it's really really structured brilliantly because of the Catholic Church because of the parochial thing parishes which are effectively run by which are effectively Catholic Church but it's also because of the counties which was a completely English system of yesteryear and nothing better shows the county system than the GAA. So they have this beautiful feeder system as uh, Gavin was saying there. We don't have that in football. We have, if you're from Cavan, if you're from um, Kerry, if you're from Mayo, if you're from Port Leash, if you're from Thurles, you don't have a League of Ireland team. And I can't be given out to you if you're going to a Liverpool game. So somehow we need to have a pyramid system, possibly through United Ireland Football League, whatever out of United Ireland, where there is a proper pyramid system um, and it kind of feeds up. And maybe if, you, if, you, if you're a club that brings a young player through, you get some of the dividend if he goes on to achieve something. Because I, I, I think about the League of Ireland, we have been a bit selfish as well. What have we done to, what have we done to help local clubs? You know? like, and, and I know that the, the likes of Belvo and you know, those clubs have, have grievances, but like, what have we done to bring forward young players? If Galway United's youths, you know, didn't, our youth system didn't exist. We, we haven't done anything really to bring young players forward. So we need, what can we do for, young, you know, for clubs? Can we send out coaches to teach the, the players? Like it, it has to be um, a two-way process. And I think it's, it's, it's just, we're, we have an awful long way to go. It's a very, very dysfunctional football family. Like it's not a family really. It's a disparate group of <laughs> warring kind of factions, you know, who but you may or may not want to invite to the wedding. <laughs> like, you know. But uh, yeah, so I, I don't know the answer, but I think we, knew, we do need to look at the GA model. And definitely, if you're a League of Ireland club, what are you doing to help local clubs that are under you in the pyramid such as it is? Yeah. And we talk about, I, I think it'd be hard to get the United Ireland League by, by the unionists, but uh, we talk about the AIL. Like with that, something that is live that could happen. Yeah. Do you think, like would the AIL make more members to it more likely or would it just be more money, which is, which is the plan, more TV money and kind of push us further down the kind of... Is, would it be good or bad? So, so I have two, two very different thoughts on that. And the first thing I'd say actually, just on the League of Ireland and geographical, I think the underage in the League of Ireland has done a much better job of, you know, you've got some really good activity in Kerry, Kildare and Carlow. You know, so there, there's a bit more activity in the underage League of Ireland. I suppose in terms of the, the All-Ireland League, um, 
I, I, I'm very, very strong on the opinion that supporters groups have been left out of the discussion, very, very much so. Um, um, myself and some of the guys in ISN have had the opportunity to meet Karen and like really excellent and well-researched proposal, but nobody was talking about supporters. And then when you say to clubs, how have you engaged your supporters around it? Like they're the ones possibly most affected by an all-island league. And I think if you have discussion, there's a lot of concern and questions and sustainability and clubs and histories and traditions. If you start those discussions, you've got a much better chance of it actually coming through as well. Um, in terms of the in terms of the actual structure, there is a few clubs in, in the Irish League that are member run uh, as well. Um, but I think, you know, going back to, to kind of the, the point that was mentioned earlier, the first thing you can, you know, do everything you want to be a sustainable club. But unless we have a sustainable league environment, we're not going to thrive. We're just going to survive as Gavin says endlessly, these boom-bust cycles and, you know, UEFA, if you look at their beautiful licensing handbook, they'll tell you the League of Ireland is the one of the most competitive leagues and has been for years. And people ask you about it, you're like, yeah, that's because champions do well, bust, champions do well, bust, champions do well, bust. And we, I think everyone sitting here, every club has pretty much had that, 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 um, that cycle at this point. So we have to break ourselves out of that and the clubs have to take responsibility for that. And the clubs have to I'm going to say tune in to what's happening in Irish football as well, because for far too long, clubs, League of Ireland clubs have just been focused on what's going on in our back garden. And what you've seen, I think, in the last two or three years is the clubs starting to talk to each other, working together, discussing bigger picture stuff, sharing best practice. And you look at Sligo Rovers and the fundraising they do, and you look at the change that's going on in Cove Ramblers right now since they became a cooperative. It's really incredible. And then everybody's second favourite team in the league is Finn Harps, like, you know, because they're just, they're just this wonderful entity that is full of brilliant characters. It's a great night away, which we haven't seen in a long time, but they, they, they have no right to be there. And yet they're still there and they're still this this like you know this this thing that you can look at and go they must be incredibly proud and you see the funding coming through from their stadium so we need to take the things like that and actually be proud of them and resource them and fund them you know the FAI's finances are difficult they're going to be difficult for some time so I think it's on the clubs to push this forward and I think it's on the clubs to be proud of their background there's been a kind of a move for far too long that the FAI would welcome any type of investment in the league. And, you know, we'd get the same questions down at Cork City, but surely you'd take, you know, would you take any investment? And the answer is, well, you know, if you had a dedicated Cork City fan that won the lotto when he wanted to come in and, you know, give you money for community programmes, like there, you know, our, our owner um, before Arcadia was Brian Lennox, who was an incredible chairperson and is still a member of Forest to this day and very supportive of the club. He sponsors the women's team. So you do have good people who have links with the club who are genuine about what they're doing and investing. But what we're saying, it needs to be balanced with that supporter voice and to give the people who actually stand on the terraces some respect. And that's been missing far too long in football, but also in Ireland, we've got more work to do. And like there's a there's a kind of a, a feeling now that, the, you know, fans were partly responsible for the demise of the Super League. and. FSC, which would be Football Supporters Europe, did a huge amount of work, but I've been campaigning for months and months now saying that even the Champions League reforms are not fair and balanced. So what I'd be saying to all of those clubs, if they're listening in, all of those fans in the Premier League or here at home, keep going now. This is only the start. Like If we don't keep going, if we're not active, whether that's club members or supporters, this is going to come back at us again, whereas now people have realised the collective power that you can bring together and bring focus and just harness that to continue trying to bring the change because it, it needs to change. I've, you know, I'm 
generally quite positive, but for football at the moment, it's quite hard in the bigger picture to see to see a, a better way forward unless we keep going with with um, meaningful change. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree totally. And look from 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 the, like the Bo's point of view, or the, from from my point of view, being involved with Bo's, but just what I've drawn from it is that really to try and rebuild the club and bring income, it, ta- it takes a long time to get the members model mm-hmm. right, and at any time it can actually it can it can kind of fall apart quite quickly because it's just based on a group of volunteers there's some eight or ten people on a board level and then probably a hundred people under them and if you lose key people you know it's not like a, like a, a company it's not like these people have lives themselves they can grow old or move or have kids and you need to just keep reminding people of the value of it and, and to bring them in and and the more you do that I think like it was mentioned to about facilities like you are more likely got mentioned earlier on like it's easier to have a discussion as Bohemians with Dublin City Council or with you know Dep- Department of Sport because ultimately we're a not-for-profit uh, there's nobody deriving personal profit from it. So if they put in a good facility and we use it and do well, that money will get reinvested in the game. And I think that there's some of the big benefits. And, and for if football becomes, and all games really derive from communities, people competing with each other, you know, whether it's one-on-one, parish v. parish, village v. village, that's the way it should be. And, and it's good that the league, and it's for the wrong reasons, but it's good it's so competitive. I think any sport that gets dominated by a couple of people, in particular, people drip, like, just because they make large amounts of money, is it even really a game anymore? Is it just, you're just going through the motions so they can take what they feel they deserve. Um, mm. Maybe Mike, can I any last comments and we'll wrap up? Join your local football club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's still a game as well. It's still, we watch it because we love the game. Um, yeah. mm. but, but I didn't fall in love with the game on TV. Like I went to a League of Ireland game and watching a game on the floodlights. Um, I spoke to Gavin about this recently. It, was, I mean, there was, it had nothing going for it, but it was live. And I, if you haven't been to a game, just experience it because you actually, you're almost like part of the action rather than flicking on the box while on Twitter. Yep. You know? That's what I think a lot of people sadly just don't experience. And you know, if you channel, if you go around the world, we went to the game in Paris, if you go to games around the world, the live experience, I mean, that's what you live for really, you know, and mm-hmm. seeing happy people, not, not watching TV, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, I think and, and the la- last point I'd say before we do finish is, I think lots of people now, I've seen a bit where you get people going to League of Ireland now because their kids, They've seen, they might follow the Premier League or they might have got caught up in that and maybe they're, they're questioning it, maybe, but they're seeing their kids on screens consistently and they're not engaging mm-hmm. with them. And mm-hmm. it's actually a way of actually just engaging with your kids or with, or with them with their granddad or whatever it is and going to a game because they're there together and they're not looking at the TV. I think that's, that's a real strength of the league and the fact that, and probably as importantly, that people aren't priced out of it. You can go to any league in the ground for 15 quid. Yeah. That's the most you'll pay in, in Ireland, which is really really like accessible to, to, to the vast majority of people yeah. and that's so important as well and it's a gift you know if you get if you get people involved in something that's community based it, it it's you know people go oh why do you give so much time and you're like but you don't ever see the stuff i get out of it which is the people and the experiences and the you know the social and like it's taken me all over the world literally just by becoming a member of my club like so um they're, they're, you'll only get that good stuff once you get involved, but you have to get involved. And probably in today's society, we kind of are so focused, pre-COVID, I would say, on everything that we have to do in the shopping and the kids and the have to go to work, have to get home, have to do the inn, have to do this, that that, that sort of being involved in your community is, is long gone, whereas that's kind of always been... Um, a very strong part of my family on both sides and as my granddad said sure if the football is shite just always stand in front of the shed and you'll have a laugh (laughs) (laughs) the last last thing as well I was just thinking there when myself and my mates went to a Glen Torren game we wanted to do a bit of channel hopping to go to the north myself Julian Canny another guy United fan and um, at half time like like the old days I'm sure we had a smartphone we just asked one of the Glens fans to take a photo of the three of us 
and we've been friendly with him ever since, like I'm always on to him, we go up to games. But I was thinking of this, the Glen Thorne bar has like TVs that you can watch the game live and you know this is a bozo. This is the beauty of like getting all the facilities together and then bring them to the game, put them in the bar and if the TV is on in the bar of the game live, they might just stay in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> so we're a bit of a mad league and we're, you know, we're a mad country, like, but uh, we have a laugh. Anyway. Uh, we, we had a game, we finished, we had a game about three years ago away to Limerick and uh, I, I normally always drive to games. I, I like drinking on the bus going down, but afterwards going home, I just want to be home. So uh, and I, 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 I drove down and I was like, I won't go on, on the bus. This, and, and they all went down on the bus. And of the whole bus of, I think, 50 lads, three people or four people came into the game. And the rest <laughs> went to, and the game wasn't on television. They went to Limerick to see a game, went to the pub, stayed in the pub and got the bus back. <laughs> And no, they actually like the League of Ireland. <laughs> so it's all about the people. It's definitely once or twice I might have stayed in the Park Barrow right now. So yeah, we'll finish there. I think like what we're saying is members club, they can prosper. I think Gavin made the best suggestion. Like maybe it can be done in Ireland where we change the, we change the system and, try and bring changes from the association, change the funding. Mm. And maybe in a league like, like an Irish league, you can actually have an ecosystem that supports mm. members' own clubs and brings that as the... Well, I mean, there's no better league. I don't think it's a better league in Europe than the League of Ireland for this to flourish now because it's partly a, a result of underfunding from uh, the FAI and from Europe over years and the fact that there's, the league hasn't been distorted by European money as uh, so many other leagues in Europe have. So I think there's so many clubs that are already member-owned and I think there's a very obvious playbook there for, uh, for more to follow. There's a real opportunity to, to just support and reward sustainability mm -hmm. and I think that is something that the FAI could really lead on and hey, our, our SSA or Tricity, you know, that might be perfect for them as well, it's a nice time. Great.